Exodus 14, verses 1 through 14. This is God's holy word, friends. Once again, take care how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your word, these sacred scriptures. Living and active, this word of God, it tells us of sin and salvation. It tells us of life and light and Jesus Christ and of a covenant-keeping God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So once again, we ask you, would you grant us the Holy Spirit's illumination and impress your word deep into our hearts? Help us to treasure it, to learn it, to obey it, and to love the Christ of it. Bless us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of my college professors told us a story of a student of his once and his one unfortunate exam. Uh, One time this student, I believe his name was Adam, went to his Monday morning midterm exam, so roughly in the middle of the semester, to his 9 a.m. class. We found his way to the classroom, and his professor was there, but he met him with a quizzical look. Adam took his seat, same seat as he always took the whole semester, and he looked around at his classmates. He didn't recognize any of them. But it was the right room, and it was the right professor, 
So he, he chalked it up to some students just taking their tests at an alternate time slot, which was not uncommon. That's not an unreasonable conjecture he made. Well, no sooner had he looked around than papers were distributed and the test began. He began to fill in the answers. It was fine for the first page or so, standard sociological concepts. It was a sociology exam he was taking. But the more he went on, the content was beyond what he could grasp or remember. Page after page of questions he felt rather inadequate to answer. Had he studied insufficiently? Maybe he just wasn't as smart as he thought. Well, the hour was over soon, and Adam reluctantly turned in his exam along with the other students to the professor and began to walk out. The professor said, Thank you all for turning in your Sociology 401 exams. I hope you all enjoyed your extra hour of sleep yesterday for daylight savings, and now I need to get the room ready for my Sociology 101 exams. Poor Adam, you can figure out what happened. Turns out he had set his alarm to get to his 9 a.m. class, but he had actually arrived at 8 a.m., failing to take into account the time change over the weekend. He had just taken the Sociology 401 exam instead of the Sociology 101 exam for which he was actually prepared. Now, mind you, this was on a Monday, and I know who Adam is, and I know that he went to church the day before, so how he lost time between Sunday and Monday, I don't know, but that's what happened to the poor guy. He was so engrossed in his exam having never taken the time to look at the clock or ask one of his classmates or ask the professor or even look at the title at the top of his exam paper, if he had somehow alerted himself to the wider context of his situation instead of zeroing in only on the exam and working with his faulty assumptions, he might have spared himself some of his misery. So often we are a people just like Adam. So often we are a people of tunnel vision and it is to our detriment in terms of wasted time, just like poor Adam from this story, as well as to the detriment of our souls, like Israel here in Exodus. This tendency toward tunnel vision is true of many of us. I'm pretty sure I make this mistake just about every day. Isn't it true? We become so immersed in our circumstances. We fail to see the larger picture. If only we'd consider the wider context, it may well change everything. So it is in the first half of Exodus 14 as we come to the text tonight. A brief scan of, over the text helps us to see that. You see there in verses 5 through 9, Pharaoh has a change of heart. Pharaoh turns back to his old ways and he wants his slaves back. And in verses 10 through 12, Israel also has a change of heart. They're marching on their way to freedom and liberty and suddenly they learn of this Egyptian army pursuing them and they realize how exposed they are. And suddenly, Israel is perfectly ready to go back to Egypt. If they zero in on the immediacy of their own situation, and they look at nothing else, they are given over to panic and despair. But if they would only but step back for a minute and consider the bigger picture, they might be a little more encouraged. The text itself does. You'll notice that the panic that they undergo is right there in the heart, the middle of the passage, but on either end of the passage in verses 1 through 4, and then at the end in verses 13 and 14, bracketing at the front and back end of the passage stands God Almighty, orchestrating his plans and his purposes. I love how one scholar put it in his comments, or rather one pastor put it in his comments, however hopeless our condition, however dire our need, however improbably the coming of help may seem to us, if we are Christians, we are being called here to remember that our lives, including our worst crises, play out within the context 
of the overarching plan of the sovereign God of all grace. Like the Egyptians and the Israelites in our text, we too are surrounded, our lives encompassed by the God who keeps his promises. Close quote. One of the things we love about the Bible is how simultaneously realistic and hopeful it is. It shows forth the design and the purposes of God in all of it, but at the same time, it does not shy away from the state of spiritual health or the state of faith of God's people, or lack thereof, as the case may be. Because quite frankly, so many times, the people of God are a mess. We don't have it together. We falter, it seems, more often than we advance. Nothing will quite help us in that regard until our eyes are lifted and our gaze is refocused and we are made to behold again our great God and his unassailable promises. We must turn, mustn't we, people of God? We must turn away from our navel-gazing, away from a, a fixation upon ourselves and a fixation upon our trials. A redirecting of our fixation to our God is the only solution and the only source for comfort. That is the lesson that Israel needed to learn, and I dare say for so many of us, that is the lesson that we need to learn too, beloved. And so with that in mind, let's look to this first half of Exodus 14. We'll study it along three lines. As we look at these three points, sometimes we do alliteration, sometimes we don't. Well, tonight is an alliteration night, three Ds, the darkness of the heart, the draw to something familiar, and the destiny of God's people. So first, let's consider the darkness of the heart. When we think of the darkness of the heart there, we're thinking namely of Pharaoh. Look at verses 5 through 9. Pharaoh receives the news there in verse 5 that Israel has begun its escape from Egypt. Now remember, Egypt has just been devastated by these ten plagues over roughly a quarter of a year, give or take. She's been devastated economically, industrially, naturally, physically. The firstborn in all families, including livestock, all dead, mourning and weeping, wailing throughout the land. Both Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, remember, begged Israel to get away from them and to get out because they knew as long as Israel was around, as long as these Hebrews were around, they, Egypt, were subject to God's ongoing judgments. They were liable to his hand of wrath. And so they begged them to leave back in chapter 12. Please, Israel, just go. Our firstborns are slain. What more? What more? Just go. Now they're finally gone. Chapter 14, verse 5. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. And so Pharaoh summons his army, this vast army of chariots and horsemen, 600 elite chariot riders, and even more beyond that. He puts officers over all. One commentator says, these are the weapons of mass destruction of the ancient world, weapons that ensured Egyptian military supremacy, close quote. It is absolutely terrifying to have these things bearing down upon you. And yet even in that military situation where one is tempted to be frightened and feel overwhelmed and as if there is no escape, does it not strike you how utterly daft Pharaoh must be at this point? How quickly he forgets what he just endured because of his death grip on the Hebrew people and his flagrant disobedience toward God. 
We, we read through it as we were going through the different plagues and we saw the back and forth of Moses going before Pharaoh and Pharaoh having these different changes of mind and these seeming changes of heart as he was internally wrestling with whether he should give a little bit, maybe give a little bit more, maybe not so much, into Israel's demands. Several times as God struck Egypt, Pharaoh seemed to acquiesce and permit Israel to leave. He asks Moses on several occasions to intercede with God for him. He even uses, Pharaoh does, God's own covenant name, calling him by the name of the Lord. But then after each plague passes, Pharaoh's heart hardens, and he goes back to his old ways and changes his mind. But the tenth plague, this dreadful judgment on the firstborn, after that, it does seem as though Pharaoh is finally broken, horrified at the judgment of God, and he kicks Israel out of Egypt. Surely nothing could have been more devastating than the death of the firstborn. How can Pharaoh ever revert back to his old ways after that? And yet look at our text. Here he is again, changing his mind, trying to hunt down his runaway slaves, his slave labor, his workforce, who really, by the way, weren't runaway since he released them. Actually, better yet, he begged them to go. Will he never learn? Defying Almighty God and holding his people captive has not ended well for him thus far. What makes him think that it's going to turn out any differently this time? Proverbs 26, 11 comes to mind. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Or as others have put it down through the years, sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us stupid. This is what unrepentant sin does, friends. It is intoxicating. It keeps a stranglehold, a, a, a headlock, if you will, a vice grip on its victims. He who dabbles with sin, who does not kill sin, who does not flee, turn, and repent from sin is a slave to sin. Pharaoh wants to keep the Hebrews as his slaves. And even though his nation has been ravaged and rampaged and obliterated and leveled by the judgments and plagues of God, suffering even the death of his own firstborn, the heir to his throne, and yet he will try yet again desperately and stupidly to hunt down God's own chosen. Pharaoh wants to keep the Hebrews as his slaves, but what our text tonight shows us is that really, really it's Pharaoh who's a slave, isn't it? There is a deep bondage that's happening in this text, but it's not the Hebrews who are in bondage. There's a deep bondage that holds his heart, enslaved to sin, and he cannot get free. God, in his glorious and sovereign and supernatural power, has acted again and again ten times now, terrible judgments, and Pharaoh still has not changed. Sometimes you'll hear the arguments from skeptics or non-believers atheists that if only we had enough evidence they tell us if only we had enough evidence then we would believe enough evidence would convince me to change my mind to believe in this god that you proclaim and and bend the knee in submission to him to embrace this jesus of whom you speak i'm not persuaded no one had more evidence than pharaoh and look at him a heart as cold and dead as stone No one could deny the reality of God's power in his land. And yet none, none of it sways him. Because his heart is still dead in sin and still shackled and enslaved to sin. 
It's a chilling picture of spiritual inability, and it is a picture of the natural condition and the fallen nature of every human heart. Every person who's ever lived, every man and woman, every boy and girl, born in our father Adam, outside of a true and lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of that, our hearts are as stubborn and dead and enslaved as this king of Egypt. Now, this is the part of the message that we as the church must take to the lost and dying world of our day. We come telling people, pleading with them through tears like the Apostle Paul with a, with a humility and an earnestness and a tenderness. We come saying, if today you are not a Christian, the Bible says this about your heart. The Bible says the same thing about your heart if you're not a believer in Christ. We live in a world and we are praying for our graduates thinking of our high school and college students, this is the world you're stepping into. You already know this. You know this from your peers and your colleagues. This is the world in which we live, that we live in a world that likes to think that people are born morally neutral. In general, maybe even good. We like to think that people are generally good, but they're simply struck with a bad influence, bad examples that lead them astray. People will often protest, won't they, brothers and sisters? When you're you're pleading with your non-Christian loved ones to come to Christ, they will protest that if they had enough proof, if they had sufficient proof, then they would believe. But the evidence that we offer, as we reason with them, as we try to offer up evidence, it's never enough. It's not compelling, they say. So they are not interested in Christ. And yet here is the testimony of Scripture. Whatever evidence is presented... By nature, man will always find our sin, life on my terms, far more compelling than life on God's terms. If I could borrow from another man's insight, unless God himself intervenes to change your heart, man will resist and he will refuse and he will reject the evidence and deny the message until, just like Pharaoh here in verse 4 and again in verse 8, the Lord will harden a man's heart and he hands him over to the consequences of his sin. I really want us to feel the the horror of that possibility and of that reality. My point is not to say don't use evidence and don't use reasonable argumentation as you're discussing these things with your non-Christian family and friends. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we must realize that until God the Holy Spirit intervenes with his regenerating grace, it won't make a lick of difference. You can pile up the evidence to the sky until the Holy Spirit should uncloud a man's eyes and unveil his eyes and unstop his ears and take away the heart of stone, it won't drive him to faith. God must intervene. Now, if a person is not a Christian, this is your condition. Right? It's, it's tempting. How many of us have known these sort of family members? It's tempting that they, we delude ourselves saying, I'll come to Christ when it suits me. I know the gospel. I was raised in the church. I've heard it. I may even believe that it's true in an intellectual sense. But I will repent of my sin and get right with Jesus when I've had my fill of this life. I'll turn to Jesus when I'm good and ready. So why not just enjoy myself a little longer? There's plenty of time yet. You know, you know anyone with that attitude? What a dreadful lie. Horrifying lie. Apart from Christ, we are a slave to our sin. We can't just say no to our sin when we jolly well feel like turning from it. If Exodus 14 wasn't clear enough, Romans 8 is abundantly clear. We didn't read this section tonight, but a little earlier in Romans 8, starting at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Left to ourselves, we will never be good and ready to come to Christ. We are slaves to sin. Our hearts are dead toward the things of God and are utterly uninterested in Christ. More than that, it's not just as if we were sort of a nonchalant, uninterested. Scripture says we are hostile, hateful toward him. Pharaoh thinks that his problem is that he's losing his slaves. Actually, Pharaoh's problem is the slavery of his own heart. This is a hard and sobering message that we as the church carry to the world. But it is nevertheless an urgent message, and it is the truth. We do the world, we do our neighbors, we do our family, our friends, no favors by glossing over things and sugarcoating the seriousness of the fallen human condition. And the most loving thing we can possibly do for a dark and dying world is to preach the truth, the whole truth of the dark reality of man's fallen nature and pray for God's sovereign grace and mercy to bring forth life. Pharaoh's condition is the condition of every human heart apart from Christ. The darkness of the heart. That's the first thing we need to see from this text. But then secondly, the draw to something familiar. The draw to something familiar. Look at verses 10 through 12 as we see Israel's story. Pharaoh has unleashed his chariots and they arrive at Pi Haheroth to capture the defenseless Hebrews. Now the Hebrews' backs are to the sea and they're, they're facing the oncoming Egyptian lines and here come the elite soldiers, right? These are, these are the marines. These are the, the navy seals of imperial Egypt bearing down upon Israel. And verse 10 says, they feared greatly. That might be bordering on understatement, but they cry out to the Lord. Verse 11, they turn on Moses. Verse 11, what? There weren't any good graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out into the desert so that we would die? Didn't we tell you this was what this was going to happen? Verse 12, we told you to leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Did you catch that? We'd prefer slavery to this kind of freedom. One pastor points out, and many of you may have read on this yourselves, and you know the statistics. Often for for long-term prisoners, after they are released, they find it very difficult to readjust to life on the outside. Incarceration, long-term, can lead to a kind of mental and emotional reprogramming as if they've been hardwired to live according to the old system. So they have liberty now, but they don't quite know what to do with it. And they find themselves preferring a routine in a system to which they've grown accustomed. It's more familiar. We're seeing something like that here with Israel. They have every reason to trust God, every reason to believe him, every reason to expect him to intervene. Yet when things get difficult, they look back to the old life. Their old slavery seems preferable to this new freedom. There it is again. If only I could see God's power demonstrated, then I would have confidence and believe. Here in the church, all we have is the Bible and prayer and sacraments, the means of grace instituted by Jesus, but it's lacking these simple, ordinary things. If I could really see God's power, then I'd be encouraged. Israel did. Look at her now. They saw God's might and miracles. He had supernaturally delivered them. There is, by the way, a pillar of fire and cloud standing right in front of them 
in their physical presence, the physical manifestation of God hovering nearby, and yet look at them. Oftentimes we aren't so different. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our hearts have been made new, and yet there are times when the old programming reappears. The old man of sin rears his ugly head, flesh and spirit ever in conflict. And in the midst of our difficulty, when following Jesus gets hard, the enemy comes in and temptation intensifies, and we begin to wonder, you know, maybe life would be easier living the old way. I've been reading the letter to the Hebrews uh, recently, and I'm struck by the similar spiritual predicament. I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus and his promises. And now life is harder than it was before. What gives? Maybe I should just return to Judaism. I, I, I don't quite understand. I don't get all this Christianity stuff. Judaism was more familiar, and frankly, it's more safe. Maybe I should just go back to that. Sin and life apart from Christ can market itself that way too. What, what, what a clever marketing ploy it is. Come to Jesus, they said. Come to Jesus, and all your troubles will go away. Mm, not so much. Sometimes following the Lord Jesus is scarier, harder, costlier. And the old life just looks so, so tempting. It's tempting to just blend right in. It, it's tempting to just live like the world, to be left alone, to not be called out, to, because to do otherwise would be hard. We're, we're seeing that in a fresh way, aren't we? If you, if you believe in the biblical ethics of sexuality and human identity, then the world regards you as just as evil as a white supremacist. So why not accommodate? My job is precarious. My wife is being harassed. My kids are being pressured. Sure would be simpler. Just put on the little rainbow pin. Don't call much attention to it. It makes things easier in the workplace. I won't say anything. Go along and get along. Sure would be simpler. Maybe the old slavery is preferable, after all, to my new freedom. But there's a solution to both these matters. So the darkness of the heart, the drawl to something familiar, but then finally we see the destiny of God's people. Now last time, last Lord's Day, when we were there in chapter 13 and we came up there to the end of the chapter, we saw how God took them from Egypt toward the promised land in the most bizarre and counterintuitive travel route. There was a much more direct way, but he tells them to go southeast instead of northeast. It's like saying, go from Knoxville to Washington, D.C., but, but go to Charlotte first. Why? But now look at verse 1. More strangeness. He says, Moses, pull a U-turn. Go back north to the edge of the sea and camp at pi Hiroth. Many of you have those helpful little maps at the back of your Bibles tracing out the likely route of the Israelites on their way to the sea. And one of those maps, you might have a little dot saying Baal Zephon, and that's where they may have been. And notice, God is going to put the Israelites between Migdol and the sea. Now, Migdol means fortress or tower. It's an Egyptian fort we're talking about here. It's a military outpost on Egypt's territorial border. So God sends Israel to a spot where their backs are against the sea, they're facing an enemy fortress with oncoming chariot soldiers bearing down. They are absolutely sitting ducks. What in the world is going on here? What is God doing? The whole thing is a setup. But it's a setup for God's glory in the midst of absolutely impossible odds. 
God's glory in salvation through judgment. That has been one of the themes that we've been arguing is on prominent display in the whole Bible, but especially here in Exodus. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God delights to teach his people who he is and what he's like, to show forth his glory in impossible circumstances. He loves to show his glory in the midst of impossible circumstances, and that's exactly what he's doing here in Exodus 14. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will get the victory. Verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, but I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when the Egyptians begin to charge and Israel cries in terror, Moses says the same thing. Verse 13 and 14, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So what's the answer when God's people are tempted to give up and turn back? Well, it's so simple, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? So simple, it's almost unremarkable. Isn't the answer to cling to the promises of a God who will fight for his own? God loves to prove his all-sufficiency in the midst of our inadequacy and helplessness and desperation. He loves to bring his children into impossible situations, to bring us to an end of ourselves, to disabuse us of any of our delusions that we've got what it takes, of any sort of self-sufficiency. I can resist any temptation. I've got what it takes to persevere in the Christian life. I'm smart enough, resourceful enough, unflappable enough. The Holy Spirit must be helpful to lesser Christians than myself. This sin won't tempt me. Parenting, I've got this down. My job won't vex me. My health condition won't make me doubt God's promises. In the words of my toddler, and maybe yours as well, I can do it myself. God loves to come in and say, not so fast. No, you can't. Sometimes he brings us down into those circumstances and all the odds are stacked against us. And we do not know how he will do it, but he does. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him and he brings what seems impossible good out of overwhelming evil. As one man says, the Lord fights for you, believer, and you can cling to his promises. You don't need to go back to the old life. Yes, it is hard, but you are in this battle and you are not in it alone. The Lord himself will fight for you. It sets hearts free. It fights for his people and it gets great glory for his name. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, our times are hard and your circumstances may very well be treacherous. Not for a moment is anyone downplaying that or denying that. But the question is, do you trust Christ the good shepherd? Will he not make good on his word to you, to never leave you or forsake you, to lead his people through? Oh, brethren, will we not be disabused of the delusion of our own adequacy? Will we not entrust ourselves wholly to the utterly capable, the wholly omnipotent, the entirely sovereign watch care of the Lord, our warrior, the one who is Christ, our king, He who rules and defends us and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. 
Oh, bless the Lord for his word to us tonight. Bless him for it. And let's believe it now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you do love us enough to show us our own inadequacy and to disabuse us of any delusion of self-sufficiency. We are nothing in and of ourselves. But in your love, you don't leave us there. You don't just show us our own bankruptcy, but you provide. You provide the riches and the resources of your very self. You fight for your people. You preserve us and persevere us. You keep your sworn promises and you keep us all the way. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And write your truth upon our hearts tonight. For Jesus' sake. Amen.